With today's newsrooms facing so many challenges, staff reductions, budgets slashed, investigative reporting in particular is becoming more vital. I thought it important to spotlight the impact in-depth reporting and long-form stories can have. In this first of a two-part Stories with Street Cred podcast, I am joined by former Daily News colleague Michael O'Keefe. Now a Newsday reporter, he previously worked for the Rocky Mountain News in Colorado before joining the New York Daily News. We discuss covering sex abuse in sports, an issue that he was reporting on as far back as the early 2000s, when Ernie Lorch, the founder of the famed Riverside Church Youth Basketball Program on Manhattan's Upper West Side, was accused of abusing several players who had been part of the Riverside program. Lorch died in 2012. O'Keefe worked with Luke Cyphers, a former news reporter, and Terry Thompson, the news's former managing sports editor, on a series of stories about Lorch over several years, long before the age of Twitter and other social media, and before cell phones were an extension of our daily lives. I later worked with O'Keefe on numerous stories about sex abuse scandals in sports. We discussed the difficulty in reporting on this issue, including gaining the trust of sex abuse survivors in order for them to discuss their ordeals. We also look at the statute of limitations issues and how the passage of the Child Victims Act in New York State was a huge victory for survivors. In part two of this series, O'Keefe and I are joined by Bridie Farrell, a former Olympic speed skating hopeful who later founded the nonprofit America Loves Kids, which is dedicated to eradicating child exploitation. So today I'm talking with my former Daily News colleague, Mike O'Keefe, a longtime Daily News reporter, before that with the Rocky Mountain News in Colorado, and now with Newsday. And one of the things I wanted to ask you right off the bat, Mike, is when I first arrived at the Daily News in the early 2000s, you were already working on a really, um, I think, important story and one that had a lot of repercussions uh, later on. But it was the Ernie Lorch story. And I wanted to ask you, how did that story come about? I know you worked on it with um, a former colleague of of yours, Luke Cyphers, and uh, Terry Thompson as well, the former sports editor of the Daily News. But how did that story first come about? Because, again, we're talking early 2000s, so way before social media, way before cell phones became an extension of our lives? You know, I moved to New York from Colorado in uh, 99. And then we, you know, the the I-team started at the Daily News about a year or so after that. And uh, one of the stories that we had been doing was on, uh, you know, college basketball, St. John's specifically, and there were allegations of that a player was receiving money from agents and that he was receiving in, inappropriate benefits from Ernie Lorch. Now, Ernie Lorch ran the Riverside Church basketball program. Riverside Church is, of course, the iconic church in uh, uh, the Upper West Side of Manhattan, a liberal um, icon, uh, very prominent in the civil rights movement, as well as the um, the, the uh, anti-nuclear proliferation movement and right. uh 
Ernie had started this uh, basketball program with another gentleman in the 60s as a way to sort of uh, reach out to the community around them, which was becoming increasingly African-American. They were the churches near Harlem. And it became, you know, kind of morphed into like the elite basketball program of uh, of the sort of, you know, the AAU um realm circuit yeah you know like it, it, it was it, you know it was the cadillac of uh, of that aau of that sort of uh you know outside the high school basketball uh circles and a lot of great ball players uh mark jackson chris mullen to be to, to name just two played for that program um and, you and know, who, I remember was, who was ernie lorch mike how how did he start that program did he have a basketball background yeah, he was a church deacon. He was a very wealthy guy. Um, he was uh, he was some kind of an investment lawyer. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, he had a lot of family money, uh, and he was able to to sort of fund this program in part with his own money. Although I think you know they got sponsorship uh, later on from from companies like Nike, um, and they had like about a budget of a hundred thousand dollars, I think at one point, which, which was huge. You know, a lot of these programs, it's literally a guy in a station wagon, you know, and right. uh, driving kids around a tournament. Right. So, but er, yeah, er, you know, Ernie was part of this sort of um, effort to reach out to the community in, in Harlem and the Upper West Side. Uh, and then the program kind of took a life of its on a life of its own and really became kind of, it was housed in the church. They, they practiced in the basement of the church, but it kind of took on its own, separate identity um and he became very influential in new york city basketball uh, circle circles and he and he was sort of you know he's very influential nationally too because he was the kind of guy he had great talent coming through there he was steering kids to different colleges and different programs um you know if ernie lorch liked you um he could get you a scholarship somewhere uh you know, a lot of his players uh, went on to the NBA at a big-time program. Or even if you were, you know, like just a Midland player, um, you know, but he thought you were a good kid or whatever, you know, he'd help you get a scholarship. Yeah, maybe not a top program, but, you know, a, a mid-level program, a Division two program or something like that. So he was – he had a reputation in, in uh, New York as being a very generous guy. He, you know, kids came to him all the time and it kind of became a joke. It kind of became like, you know, I talked to guys who said, you go to Ernie and say, my girlfriend needs an abortion and Ernie would give you, you know, $200. They got any, they got to even have a girlfriend, you know, or my mom's, um, you know, the, the, the con ed turned off the power because my mom hasn't paid the bill and Ernie would give the guy a hundred dollars to, to, to get the power turned back on. So, um, he was a very generous guy in a lot of ways, but, and, and to answer your question about how we found out about this was, uh, in covering the, that story, the St. John story, uh, you know, you start to meet a lot of these street guys, street, street basketball guys. And I was at, I remember being very specifically at it. I was at a tournament at Hunter college that summer. Mm-hmm. And I, you know, met with some of these guys, and we went to a diner afterwards to have a bite to eat. And they were all talking about this and talking about how Bernie, um, you know, sexually preyed on uh, some of the players. And you know, the the joke was, uh, "Don't get into the shower when Ernie's in the locker room." They told me stories about Ernie um, sitting near the shower and watching guys shower, supposedly because he wanted to make sure they were actually washing themselves. Um, so it was an interesting, you know, it was one of those things that I thought, 
you know, I learned in working with the I team was uh, is a, these are really difficult stories to prove. Um, Absolutely, I was going to say and, when and when allegations like those arise, um, I mean, tell tell listeners how difficult that is to pursue a story like that. You really have to have your facts nailed down um, to go to print or to to put a story into publication. Yeah, you, you, you know, it's one of the worst things you can accuse somebody of, um, especially someone who works with children and, uh, you know, sexual abuse. And maybe only um, uh, murder is, is, yeah. is worse than that. But we really wanted to be careful that this we weren't just sort of like chasing rumors. And um, we really didn't do anything with the story. I think we, we tried to report it out. Uh, for a couple of years, um, and we really didn't get a lot of traction just because, I mean, not only was it difficult from our own standards, right, that you don't want to make a false accusation or anything like that, right. but a lot of people would say things to me about it, but they wouldn't want to go on the record. And I even, you know, they told me that they knew victims and stuff like that, but this was 20 years ago. Um, I hope the world has changed since then, but there was a lot of uh, homophobia in those yep. circles and, mm-hmm. and, a, and a lot of people conflated homo you know uh homosexuality with child abuse so you know if a man abused you when you were a teenager uh the fear was that you were gay that that had somehow made you gay and these guys had a lot of fear of that so there was a lot of issues that made it difficult for us to to report that out um but then Luke, really, he, he kind of broke through the logjam. And this is one of those things, again, I'm talking about there are just some stories you don't think we'd ever be able to prove that. But if you work at it and you kind of stick to it, um, maybe a crack comes and you can take advantage of that. And, and Luke learned that the uh, New York City Police Department were investigating uh, Lorch and that they had established a hotline for people who had information to call. And so that was kind of... That was the way we were able to initially break that story, and um, and was and that it kind con- of all was, developed yeah. after that? Was that connected to Morgenthau's uh, DA's office, or was that separate? The NYPD investigation. I I, I don't think it was the DA's office. Yeah. Um, I, I I do, if I'm remembering correctly, it was the uh, the NYPD. Yep. Yep. And then, as you pointed out, Mike, these stories have so many different layers and are so emotional and heart-wrenching in the information, you know, allegations, obviously, that that surface. Um, And a lot of times, it's very difficult for victims, survivors to come forward and, and talk about what they experienced. Was that the case when you were reporting on Lorch. Yes, there, there were uh, there were people that we had talked to um, who would say, I know so-and-so had been abused because I saw it. You know, I was there. Um, mm-hmm. Lorch touched him. He, you know, we were both in the locker room and Lorch touched him in an inappropriate place or something like that. Um, you know, again, I mean, I think there was a, there's just sort of, I think survivors um, have uh, uh, sometimes they're embarrassed by this. Sometimes they're humiliated by it. Mm-hmm. Um, sometimes, again, you know, and I think this was the case with some of the guys we were talking to, just this fear of being labeled as, as gay um, mm-hmm. was a huge factor in it. It was like so, I mean, to me, it was so silly, but it was an unbelievable 
fear that these guys had. And I think there was a lot of factors like that that, that made it difficult for some of these people to talk. Once we did find people, um, you know, and once they did start to talk to us about it, it kind of was like a domino effect. Once people saw the way we handled it in the in our stories, um, I think they became more comfortable with us because we were, you know, we respected people's boundaries in terms of we said we weren't going to name them. We right. didn't name them. Um, you know, we don't name the media generally doesn't name sexual assault victims anyway. So, um, but I think once we started to do the stories, people felt a little more comfortable with us. One of the things when, when later on, when I was at the daily news for a few years and working alongside you and was able to, um, report some of these other stories involving sex abuse in sports, like the Jerry Sandusky uh, scandal at Penn State, um, Bernie Fine scandal at Syracuse. Um, one of the things that I learned um, reading your reporting and working with you was that more and more the issue of statute of limitations kept coming up. And was that the case with the Lorch? coverage and story and um we can talk a little bit about uh what you ultimately worked on which was uh, covering the the evolution of the child victims act but first with lorch was that an issue did any of these victims want to try and uh, uh file uh lawsuits against lorch but were were unable to yeah that that was part of my education because i would say that uh, you know, some of these victims, uh, why don't you sue him? And you could sue him. You could sue the Riverside church. Uh, you know, you should talk to a lawyer about that. Mm -hmm. Um, and, and that's when I learned, you know, Hey, basically we're out of luck because the child, this before the child victim act was passed, but you know, mm -hmm. in New York state, uh, New York state had a very, uh, stingy, um, statute of limitations on on child sexual abuse so basically you could not file a, a lawsuit after you turned 23 years old uh right. you had get to five years after your 18th birthday makes it 23 um you know and for, for a lot of the reasons we just discussed because people uh are embarrassed people are humiliated people try to bury it people get uh addicted to to substances and drugs and alcohol right. um you know for whatever reasons um people are unable or unwilling to file a lawsuit uh before they turn 23 and it's a lot of times what i found was that a lot of survivors didn't really realize the extent of um the damage that they had suffered until they were like in their 30s and they go you know i'm i'm drinking too much i'm doing too much drugs i get into fights i'm divorced maybe i ought to pay attention to this yep and were you also finding, as as you were being educated about statute of limitations issues, um, were you also finding that across the country it differed from state to state and some states very antiquated laws, others more progressive? Was that the, the case when you were covering Lorch? Yes. Yeah. I mean, New York had one of the, the worst in terms of being a survivor. Um one of the worst laws right. and, and and we kept running into that as we were covering you know at, we, we covered the ernie lorch case and for a long time that we we did our initial stories uh that case didn't really go anywhere because of the statute of limitations um criminally 
New York authorities never really took action against uh, Lorch. Later on, he was charged in Massachusetts. Um, and then a lot of these guys couldn't file lawsuits because because of that. So, you know, it was, we, we looked at it like that's crazy. Um, we kind of moved on to other stories. You know, as, as you know, you were involved in a lot of those. But, yep. uh, you know, it, it, this got on our radar again when we started covering uh, the Bob Oliva case at Christ the King High School. Um, he was accused of sexually abusing a, a family friend for many years and then other victims also came out um and again we said to these guys well why don't you sue them i can't sue them because i'm you know it happened 40 years ago and i'm uh you know the statute of limitations has expired on this so we started to pay a lot more attention to that um to to uh efforts to change that uh once we got started covering the the christ the king case yeah. And I was I was going to ask you about the Oliva case. Of course, for listeners, Christ the King has very powerful uh, basketball programs, both girls and boys. How did that um, story evolve or how did you first hear about um, some of the accusations leveled against Oliva? <laughs> Uh, you know, I heard it from a guy uh, I knew named Sam Albano, who uh, he was the first one. He called me and he said, uh, and Sam and I had had a um, contentious experience, uh, a, a contentious relationship. We'll put it that way. He had me thrown out of Madison Square Garden at one point because I went into a private club um, to interview him uh, on another story. Uh, hmm. And so, yeah, you know, I like I. To me, it was kind of a badge of honor to get thrown out of the garden. But um, <laughs> you and Charles Oakley, <laughs> but yeah, yeah, me and that's that's right. Yeah, I'm in good company. Um, but yeah, Sam. Uh, so Sam called me and he said, "Have you heard about this?" And so, you know, we moved very slowly on that. We did a lot of work um, just to to talk to people, and and you know, I wound up talking to the uh, victim, uh, Jimmy Carlino, uh, and we we really did a lot of digging into Jimmy's background and I talked to Jimmy a lot to get a feeling for, you know, is this guy trustworthy or not? Um, and, you know, finally we were able to pull the trigger and do a story on it. Uh, I mean, one of, one of the things that was interesting in that case was that because of the statute of limitations, uh, issues in New York, Jimmy could not, um, sue Bob Oliva or Christ the King or any other, uh, body that was involved in this case. Um, but and and obviously also criminal charges weren't going to be filed either. Right. But what was interesting about this case was that he that Oliva took Jimmy to Boston in 1976 um, to go to a Yankees Red Sox game, and uh, they stayed overnight. And Jimmy claims he was abused at the hotel uh, that they stayed at. Um, the statute of limitations that, you know, you got to remember the context of all this. This is after the Boston uh, Globes spotlight series comes out on right. child abuse. You know, Boston looks like this, like they have been ignoring uh, authorities in Boston look like they've been ignoring child uh, sex abuse for, for decades. Uh, you know, it's just, it doesn't look good for them. And so maybe the authorities there thought we need to uh, pick up our game, but they decided to prosecute, um, Oliva, based on that 1976 game, the statute of limitations in, in Boston, Massachusetts, when you um, leave the state, 
the statute of limitations stopped ticking. So uh, they were able to get around that statute of limitations issue. And, and at the end, um, Oliva pleaded guilty. Uh, it was a very moving, um, very moving uh, sentencing. I went to the sentencing and Jimmy Carlino gave a um, victim impact statement. And right. there wasn't a dry eye, including my own, in, in the courtroom. And the judge said, I've, this is one of the most powerful victim impact statements I have ever heard um it was, it was a pretty amazing moment but that was a you know again that was jimmy was able to get a, around the statute of limitations because of um because this was in massachusetts but the, the statute of limitations was still a problem in new york and it really didn't become you know it didn't really get resolved until the child victims act passed two years ago yeah just going back to the oliva sentencing what was the um end result for Oliva was he sentenced to jail he was sentenced to probation um he was uh, he had to wear a uh a ankle monitor um he moved to South Carolina he had a condo in South mm-hmm. Carolina he moved there um you know Jimmy has tried to sue him he claims he doesn't have any any assets any resources um we i i, I question that i i know Bob Oliva um, very well. He, he did these camps every year. Mm-hmm. Um, it's hard to believe that he never put any savings aside or anything like that. But um, so I think, you know, Jimmy, the last I heard was that Jimmy was, uh, he had filed a lawsuit. He, was, he had hired a new lawyer. Um, lawsuit didn't seem to be going anywhere. And then, as you pointed out, um, in the background of, of all these stories going back to when you did the Lorch coverage um, and the evolution was the, the Child, Child Victims Act, as you mentioned. And how did that um, law finally come to pass? What was the evolution and who were the uh, uh, lawmakers that were behind that bill? You know, a, a lot of the credit, uh, the lion's share of the credit should go to Marge Markey, who was an assemblywoman from Queens. Right. Um, and she introduced the Child Victims Act uh, 2005 or 2006, I'm not mm-hmm. sure what year, um, based on her own family experience. A family member had told her that she had that he had been sexually abused uh, and uh, was unable you know, to seek justice in the courts because of the statute of limitations. And um marge kind of you know she pushed that through uh from for many years and it was kind of a solitary and um you know it was this sort of solitary effort she didn't the, the bill did have support among democrats and it passed the assembly um i think every year or almost every year that it was introduced but it could never get through the senate the republicans controlled the senate mm-hmm. um and just you know one thing to just to to say here uh, you know, one of her, uh, Marge is now in really bad health. Um, I'm really glad that she was able to see uh, the Child Victims Act pass. This was right. her baby. And this is, you know, I'm so glad that I saw her at the signing last last year, um, the bill signing. And she, you know, it's just great that she was able to, to see this thing get passed. Um, her top aide was a guy named Mike Armstrong, and he was also just like a tireless uh warrior for the child victims act he's mm-hmm. a former journalist who got into politics um and i just you gotta you gotta also tip your hat to him he died a couple of months ago 
from coronavirus. Oh, um, and so, uh, you know, he but he was just a great guy. And, and really, nobody was covering the Child Victims Act. And so we started doing it in the sports department at the Daily News, which was a little weird, you know, because it wasn't a straight sports story. But we were we were people would go to Albany every year and try to get this passed. And we would follow, you know, people that were in sports who there was a guy named chris gavigan who's you know he's just a great guy he's a filmmaker he had been um uh, he, uh, assaulted by a roller hockey coach when he was a a young kid and um you know he was just such a, a great um voice for people saying we need this and so we, we kind of did stories based on athletes that were lobbying and and speaking out on it and that's how we handled it but um and, and putting it in the sports context, but nobody was writing about the Child Victims Act for all those years, and that was it was it struck me as as very unusual, um, especially now, Mike, when you think about all of the horrific stories that have come up, not just in sports but in society. But since you and I uh, have a traditional sports background, whether it's the Sandusky case with Penn State and later Larry Nasser and USA yeah. Gymnastics. Um, and to think that uh, an issue like that or a law like that that has had trouble passing didn't get much coverage is, uh, is you know, difficult to get your mind around. And I want to go to specifically 2016 when, as you mentioned, you, uh, you were in Albany quite a bit. Um, what were some of those experiences like uh, where you were with victims who were going to advocate the passing of this law and some of the um, experiences you had with lawmakers in the Capitol? Well, there, there's one that just stands out, you know, head and shoulders above the rest. And it was one of the funniest and, you know, most wild experiences i ever had in terms of this um so yeah it was we, we were I, I in uh, albany this, in the, is. <laughs> this is the, the pizza gate right yes. this was uh <laughs> so there was a lawmaker from syracuse who uh had a, a pizza party for the syracuse uh women's basketball team the, the same day that people were lobbying for the child victims act and uh you know, the, I was I had teamed up with Jefferson Siegel, who's a great guy, great photographer, mm-hmm. and we were looking for we just basically walking around the Capitol, um, looking for people who we could tag along with while they were lobbying, and we ran into uh, Catherine Robb um, and Steve Jimenez, who were you know two two of the leaders of the Child Victims Act movement, and uh, and two very you know, extremely intelligent, extremely articulate uh, people. And they said, yeah, you guys can hang around with us. So we, and we get onto an elevator and we get, and a guy carrying 20 pizzas gets on just as the doors are about to close. And we go up to the floor, uh, you know, where this lawmaker had his office and we go in and we try to talk to him. And I'm, I'm just sort of hanging back with Jefferson and he's <laughs> taking a picture every once in a while. And this guy's, uh, this lawmaker staff is is telling us, you know, he doesn't have time to talk to you now. Come back. And so, you know, we're, we're there for a few minutes. And, and Catherine and Stephen are, um, you know, they're polite, but they're forceful. They're saying, you know, we want to talk to him. We want to talk to him. And finally, it goes nowhere. So we leave. And as we're walking out the, the door, there's another 
room with like a big conference table and there's all the pizza that's where all the pizzas went and the and there's again a Syracuse women's basketball team you know is sitting in there and there's this guy uh and so we had a so Jefferson just starts shooting he just starts snapping pictures and they turn that into the front page of the daily news you know he's too busy to talk to uh Right. To, to victims of, of sexual abuse, but he's uh, but he's not too busy to have a pizza party. And <laughs> this guy went nuts, and he was like, he was he accused Jefferson of like, uh, you know, being inappropriate of going into the room and taking pictures. And he never did just that thing. Je- Jefferson is a complete professional. Right. He didn't do anything in, anything inappropriate. But uh, you know, the Daily News editors, as they were wont to do back in those days, like they just took this thing and they ran with the ball, and it was. We got a lot of calls about that one. I have to say, people either loved that or hated it. <laughs> yeah, uh, that was a true tabloid headline. <laughs> what What is behind the Child Victims Act, Mike? What are the 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 things that afford victims uh, what they weren't uh, previously afforded? I mean, it really had two parts. One was it that it raised the um, uh, the deadline i guess so the uh age where people could uh file lawsuits so so now it 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 went from 23 to now uh it's sometime in your 50s where you can um file a lawsuit uh the other thing that it did that was uh really important was that it created a window for people who have been denied justice in the past to file lawsuits so basically if you had not been unable to file a lawsuit because of the statute of limitations you had a year which has now been extended because of the coronavirus pandemic to august 2021 i think um but you have this period of time where you can file a lawsuit and 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 this is why you see all these commercials on TV, you hear them on the radio, um, you know, are you a victim of child sexual assault? You know, were you uh, assaulted by the Boy Scouts? Are you assaulted in, while uh, a member of the Catholic Church or things like that? Um, it went from an issue that people didn't want to talk about and, and didn't get a whole lot of coverage to where I can't turn the TV on anymore and, and not see these commercials. Right, right. Well, it was very powerful uh, in its own right, the, the impact <laughs> of, of a law like that that it had. And the other thing I wanted to make sure listeners understand. So when you're talking about victims being able to file lawsuits, is that only civil suits or does that include being able to file a criminal lawsuit? Well, well, I mean, it it would be criminal charges, right? You know, the district attorney. Yeah. You know, and, and this also extends the period of time um, for criminal charges. You know, that said, uh, prosecutors, are reluctant to take on a case that uh, is what, what makes the Massachusetts case with Jimmy Carlino and Bob so amazing um, is that, you know, these are really hard cases to prosecute. Um, mm-hmm. And then if you think about something that happened 10, 20, 30 years ago, um, is there evidence? Is there physical evidence? So the right. criminal aspect of this hasn't figured into it as much, um, but it, it you know, it, This law has also made it uh, easier for uh, prosecutors to bring charges. Mm -hmm. It's it's important. um, It's an important bill. And I'm wondering, in all of your coverage of these kinds of stories, is there other legislation that you've seen or that is like the Child Victims Act having trouble getting passed uh, or is on the table but can't get passed? you know, the, the Senate or other 
uh, elements of government? Well, we saw um, a lot of these bills getting taken up, and not just in New York, but in a lot of other states. Uh, like I said, New York had one of the most restrictive um, statute of limitations, mm-hmm. but uh, there were a lot of states where you know you couldn't file after the age of twenty-eight or after the age of thirty or things like that. Uh, and it really was it really became a national movement. I, I really look at it like as a national civil rights movement in terms of um, these, these are, you know, it's not the classic civil rights movement of African-Americans or women or the LGBTQ community. Um, but it is a civil rights issue in terms of people are saying, you know, we're not going to hide anymore. We're not going to be second class mm-hmm. citizens. We're not going to you know, we we want justice. We want um, we want to be compensated for the damages that we have suffered we we want an acknowledgement of the pain that we have suffered um we we want someone to take responsibility for this um we want the people who covered it up to take responsibility for it and it really has it really has become a national movement and a national issue in a lot of ways albeit at the state level right you know so you have fights going on in hawaii and fights going on in michigan and fights going on in new york so yeah what is most satisfying? I know, again, at the outset of this conversation, Mike, we talk about how heart-wrenching and emotional um, these kinds of stories are to report and to um, go th- digging around and gaining people's trust to talk to you. But what's the most satisfying for you covering these kinds of issues? Um, is it the feedback that you get from um, you know, the victims that you've interviewed? Is it um, seeing something like the Child Victims Act being passed? Well, it, it was it was really satisfying, certainly. I mean, it was a great day to be uh, with people who have been fighting for the Child Victims Act for many years and watch Governor Cuomo sign that. That happened last year. It was a very, really, really rewarding day. Um, I mean, what, the, the, I think... A couple of aspects of it. First of all, the people that I met um, covering this story uh, were just tremendous. Either, you know, the lawyers who are representing people, um, the survivors themselves. Uh, people were inspiring people. They're tough people, smart people. Um, in many cases, very funny people. Um, and that was probably the best part, just meeting the people that mm-hmm. uh, and getting to know some of them. But, you know, you go into journalism with a bit of idealism right we all nobody gets into the business like i'm gonna get really rich doing this um we we do it because we want to we want to have an impact on the world and and that was um that was very satisfying too to know that uh, i helped get this thing passed and 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 bring attention to you know the fact that it needed to be passed And, and it's also rewarding um that we were doing this when nobody else was really doing it. You know, after 2018, when um, the state Senate uh, flipped to the Democrats, it was a foregone conclusion that this bill would be passed. Governor right. Cuomo was very supportive of it. Um, but for many years, this was just kind of like a, you know, candle in the wind, as they say. And, uh, you know, it was, it was great. It was very uh, satisfying, you know, to be part of get, keeping that thing alive and, and just, you know, giving um, giving a voice to people saying, hey, we need this bill to be passed. Yeah, yeah. well said. And uh, as you point out, it's um, something 
particularly when it gains resonance and more and more outlets are covering it. Um, and you think back of all the stories you did prior to that and all the uh, you know, blood, sweat, and tears that you um, expend trying to do these stories, do the reporting, uh, cultivate sources. Um, that's a rewarding culmination of all that, that work. And uh, you've done tremendous work both at the Daily News, prior to that at the Rocky Mountain News, and continue to do so at, the, at Newsday. So uh, I encourage listeners to read Mike O'Keefe, and um, it's, again, it's a pleasure to have you on the podcast, and uh, we'll do it again soon. Thank you. Thanks for having me. Appreciate it. Thank you for listening to part one of the latest Stories with Street Cred podcast. Please be sure to tune in to part two. I'm your host, Christian Rett.